Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please do get in touch at hello at hopeharrogate.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We get to be going through Nehemiah, which is like one of my favorite ones, probably because Nehemiah to me reads much more like a soap opera than it does anything else. And, uh, and I just love it. I love the story behind it and the action and oh, I love it. So I get to move on to uh, chapter four. And I just feel like I need to do a shout out to Pete for reading all of those names <laughs> in chapter three. That was intense. And I am impressed. I'm wholeheartedly impressed. But, but because this is moving on to the next part of the story. And I wanted to sort of step back a bit and just remind us of the grand context that is what's going on. And so I have visuals, but I, my, my history is, is not of technology. So our visuals are going to be very, very, very minimal. So this is what it is. I want to remind us of the whole story. And then we're going to jump in because this isn't just about chapter four. This is about what's been happening to bring us to chapter four. So Come on a mystery, magical adventure with me to my visual aids. <laughs> you ready for this? Brace yourself. Lower expectations. All right, here we go. Once upon a time. Oh, what? Yes, you're right. Here it is. There was a divided kingdom in Israel. So there was Israel and they had... They used to have one king like under David and it was all exciting. And then there was some problems and they ended up having like a little mini split. And so they ended up having a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. That's why when you're reading scripture, particularly in like Kings and Chronicles, you see them talk about the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And they often just flip back and forth like, let's check in now with what's happening in Israel. No, let's check in now with what's happening with Judah. And so it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And and independently, they were on their own little fantastic journeys with God. So you had uh, the kings of Israel's being a bad king, and then oop, Judah had a good one, and then oop, new J- Judah had a bad one, and then yay, Israel. And it goes back and forth. And God started going, Look, people, you've got to really like write it in and follow me, or else we're going to have some problems. There's going to have to be some correction that comes to you. Um, and they weren't alone. You had the Aramites up here, and the Ammonites, and the Moabites, and the Edomites, and the Philistines, or Philistines, depending on how you say it over there. Uh, And yes, for those of you who play games, these are from my pandemic. Okay. So uh, these are all these people who live here and they go back and forth and God started sending prophets to be like, hold off people. If you don't get going, we're going to have to have some major correction. I'm going to have to bring in some stuff. And so he sent Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah and Zephaniah and a lot of people whose names end in Aya, like Obadiah and Habakkuk. And they, he sent them to warn them and say, change your ways. Come on. And at some point they didn't. And God started to bring down what he said he was going to bring down to correct and call his people back to him. Now, this is a big timeline thing and none of us really like numbers. So I thought, well, let's go back in time and pretend just so you can see how long it takes. The story takes. I'm going to put it. If we looked back now, this is how long ago it was for Nehemiah. So if Nehemiah is looking back, this is what it would have felt like to him. The Assyrians came. They were over here. They lived over here this way. 
this way. And the Assyrians came in, and to him, it was like looking back to the 1740s, a long time ago, 200 and something years ago, the Assyrians came in and were like, cool, we are angry people and we shall conquer you, and came in and just sweeped away the northern kingdom. It was horrible. They led them away through, like, uh, they pierced their tongues and dragged them back. And there was a little remnant that was left behind, but pretty much it was pretty bad. And a lot of people that were left behind stayed in this place called Samaria. And some of the Assyrians stayed and they sort of over the years turned into um, what we call now the Samaritans. They were sort of leftover peoples who, who lived there, the Jews, and then um, maybe married into the Assyrian thing. So they <laughs> swept away. And that was for hundreds of years, Assyria was up here co-ruling with Egypt, and down here the Judah kingdom was keeping going. So you'll see in scripture, more kings of Judah than you will up here, because that sort of devastated. And hundreds of years later, to Nehemiah, it would have been as like 130 years later. So all of a sudden, we're not in the 1740s anymore. We move forward to like Queen Victoria's time, 100 and something years before Nehemiah, and the Babylonians come. And the Babylonians come and they're like, we're going to come get you people of the South. Because God was like, you still have not been corrected. And uh, they made a deal with the guy in Jerusalem and then he changed it. And so they came in and whoosh, devastated Judah. And they devastated Judah and they took some away and they left a very small remnant. But most of it, whoosh, they swept back to Babylon as well. And so now you have this devastated population with a little bit of left over but these huge things hundreds of years beforehand and for at least 50 60 years it was like this with the Samaritans here remnants of Jews around and at some point to, G to Nehemiah it would have been you know back in the 1930s it would have been a long time before about 90 years before Jeremiah um, King Cyrus comes along Persia takes over Babylon and and the 1930s jazz singers of the time, King Cyrus, goes, okay, folks, you can go back, fulfilling God's promise. And so therefore, the Jews began to tri trickle back. There was one big move that brought them back, and there was a bit more trickles. But over 90 years, they began to move back in. But they now had to deal with all of these people, and they had a devastated land, absolutely devastated land. And the drama begins. Now, this drama is pretty intense. The drama is like the most horrible drama ever because it's paperwork drama. Because they're in there and they're thinking, oh, we should rebuild, right? We want to rebuild. We want to do something. But all of the people around them, all the people around them are like, are you kidding? No, you just left and we don't want you that strong. So they started complaining. They started sending letters back to the king going, oh, these guys were bad news last time. Let's not... Let's not let them do this. So they sent letters back going, you can read this in the book of Ezra, going, oh, don't let them, they'll be rebellious and then you won't get money. And so then the letter would come back, yeah, yeah, stop building guys. And then they'd be like, oh no, I'm gonna send a new letter. And then the king would be like, okay. And for the next 80 years, it was back and forth and back and forth. They even got lawyers involved. Can you imagine anything more exhausted than lawyers and paperwork and stopping and starting and stopping and starting? And the people of God just couldn't get a break. And so finally, after all of this, we reached the modern time of the book that we're in, which is Google Boris Johnson. That's where we are now. 
And he finally is coming in and he's been appointed the governor. We've read his story of how he comes. He comes back in and he has to deal with a very difficult political situation. He's got the Ammonites over here. He's got some people in city states over here. He has the, the Samaritans who are remnants of a long time ago. He's got all of these um, you know, Jews that have come back over many different waves who have been dealing with paperwork and are absolutely knackered. It is, it's been hundreds of years that this stuff is going on. It has been hundreds of years since since Queen Victoria's time to him, but, you know, we're talking in the you know, 596 or something, since, since they went away and had what they had before. He is trying to reestablish something that they have not seen in hundreds and hundreds of years. And so I wanted to just put that picture in because sometimes we just think he just rides in and it's great. But this has been a long, drawn out ugh, battle. And in Jerusalem, where we're talking, I always pictured it being kind of huge, like it's the Jerusalem of its time. But actually, at the time, the archaeological estimates of what Nehemiah walked back into was well, the, the lowest estimate is 500 people in Jerusalem. The highest estimate, the archaeological um, sort of guesstimations around 3,000 people. Jerusalem had not been restored to its former glory. It is a shadow of what it is. And I wanted to show you this slide just so you can get your head around it. This is Harrogate. You can see Harrogate. And the blue outline is the size of Jerusalem at the time. Now, Jerusalem had sort of like its corbett, and then it had its sort of extended bit. Hezekiah's wall went around like four times a bit bigger than that. But um, there's a bit of debate about which wall they rebuilt, but they think they rebuilt the central wall, which was this wall. It's about the size of a little bit of the stray. And so that's from like the main roundabout. You can see that's the center of town on the right. And it goes down, you know, to the Turkish baths. It was this small, compact space with a skeleton group of people who had been left over. And they are looking at trying to say, rebuild something, rebuild these walls that are 12 feet thick and 30 feet tall. I'm talking meters now, three meters wide, four meters wide and uh, 10 meters tall. So they're trying to build these things. They're trying to face something when they are small, when they have been beat down, when they have been trying to rebuild for years. And now we enter into our story. So we are in chapter four. And I'm going to read to you because my PowerPoint isn't working. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn to Nehemiah four. And if you don't have a Bible, then feel free to just listen like an audiobook. And uh, well, we'll turn to our map and I'll point at things as we go so that we can do this. So here's our map. <laughs> So I'm going to read to you chapter four, and then we're going to talk about what God is saying. So we have, we've just heard all about the wall and who was building what. And so when Sambalat, who is from Samaria, so he's the Samaritans from this people who stayed the whole time and didn't leave and come back. So when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. I love this language. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Because remember, uh, the, the Babylonians just devastated everything. 
Tobiah the Ammonite, so got to have someone chipping in from the side, of course, who was buddies with him. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, huh, what they're building? Even if, a, if even a fox climbed on it, he would break their walls of stones. He would break down their walls of stones. I mean, I'm sure that was devastating repartee at the time. So verse four. And then I love how Nehemiah is telling this story. And then he's so moved by just how ridiculous these people are that he just spontaneously bursts into prayer. And he says this, hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height which is huge, by the way. That's like five meters tall, depending on where you were on the thing. It was a very tall wall. So it was, this was not an insignificant building they've done. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their hearts. But when Sambalat and Tobiah, uh, the Arabs, which were somewhere around here, the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod, who are these guys over here, uh, heard that repairs to Jerusalem walls, so everybody around was hearing this, had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They are surrounded by these enemies. Sorry, I'm just going to turn my camera around. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah, that's that southern kingdom, said the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. So you got people exhausted. You got the enemies going, we're just going to sneak in and kill them while we're doing it. Then the Jews who lived near them Remember, we had all those sort of people who had been scattered around who would come back. So the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed by me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Remember, they were all doing their little bits. And you've seen how big that is compared to Harrogate. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. 
our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half of the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Not everybody lived inside the city. They were sort of, you know, scattered out around. It's just when it was a problem you ran in. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off, all, took off our clothes. Each had his weapon on, even when we went for water. I like how that end, he was like, we were never new at the end. We were always ready. So that's chapter four. That's the story of this response. And I, I find this so, I find this so compelling because I can't imagine what it would have been like to be a few people in a rundown city that used to be the glory of God dedicated to his purposes and be in this rundown place surrounded by enemies trying to rebuild what was lost hundreds of years ago. It can be exhausting. And I find when I look at this, my question becomes, why didn't God just deal with it? Like God said, live in this land. He said, occupy this land. He said, after I've taken you away, I will send you back and you will live there. And, and he, God has said so many things about, about his people being in this place. Why hasn't God's sovereignty just whoosh, made it happen? Clearly God has this plan. So why is it so bumpy? And, and I find that in my own life too. This times where I feel like God has said, this is what is coming in your life. Whether it was I struggled with infertility for a really long time. I was like, I, I think this is what God has. And I was expecting it to just be like that or a new job or whatever we walk into. Sometimes we expect that if we feel deeply that God has said it, then we, then we look for it to be the smooth path. We look for it to be God making it happen. And we see in scripture those times where God's sovereignty in action is powerful where it it launches into place where god just says literally says to people step back i will do this and he you know levels armies and he moves nature and he he brings water out of nothing we have seen god's power in action when he sets his will to that but we also see times where god gives clear instructions to jericho he could have snapped his fingers and brought the walls down, but instead he said, no, this is, listen to my words. This is how you are to do it. Walk along the walls or walk into the river or go and, you know, when Paul needed healing, he's Jesus specifically told Ananias exactly what to do. Sometimes you get these instructions of how to walk in the power of God, of what he's doing. And sometimes people moved in the direction of God's heart, the missionary journeys, they're being moved by healing and they responded to what God was doing in the greater call. I see so many different ways God brings out what he has called us to. And yet my first reaction, my first reaction is almost always, God, why don't you, why is this so hard? And I go into this doubt mode, this, this mode of, oh, I've run into a bump. Where is this opposition coming from? What did I do? Did I get it wrong? And this sort of self-doubt at the, at the first, the first moment of opposition often can cause doubt and worry and stress as if it is an aberration of walking in God's purposes and plans. And I see in this scripture, this real encouragement 
that walking in the sovereignty of God is walking in relationship. He's walking with him and saying, okay, God, is this a you do this thing? Is this a you're going to tell me exactly how to do it? Or are we going to go on a journey together of walking towards this? I don't think opposition is, is against the will of God. I think sometimes persevering through the journey of opposition is a journey of purpose and preparedness for what's happening. So I just wanted to give us, I guess, some tools of how we walk in God's sovereignty with readiness and action. And uh, so there are three things that I find really interesting about this really quickly. Um, one, Nehemiah was ready for opposition. I mean, he's known the stories. This has been a long journey of the people. And this past, you know, 90 years of the paperwork and the faff and the endless lawyers that were brought in to deal with all of this stuff. This He is aware that this is not going to be an easy walk. He comes expecting opposition. And I, I never realized how powerful it can be to go, okay, God's asked me to do this. There's going to be some opposition. Let's do this. Let's do this. This is part of it. And to, to come with it. And this is a normal thing that we do in life. Like I, when my kid was small, you pack, if you ever existed around a baby, you pack these huge bags with like preparedness for every eventuality. If my child has diarrhea four times, explodes, vomits, and falls in a river, I have enough clothes, packages, wipes to handle all of that. You're ready for a bad day. Uh, or, you know, when you're learning a sport, you not just learn how you're supposed to do it, but you learn how to rescue it. I played volleyball for years and it was always about how do you rescue it if it goes off this way or how do you deal with it when it gets to be a problem? Or, you know, when I teach people how to do sermons, I always put plan in a bail point. So like, if it's going terribly, just bail at that point. Uh, I, you plan for opposition, you plan for it to not go well. What would it look like to joyfully look at what God has asked us to do, knowing opposition is coming and say, I'm ready. I'm ready. I, with a whole heart, am going to run at what God has placed before me, at what God has promised, knowing there will be hurdles, knowing there will be battles, knowing that I'm going to fall and scrape my knee on this one. I am ready for what is coming for the sake of what he has called me to. There's a readiness that is there. The second thing I wanted to say is Nehemiah recognized what the opposition was. So often I just tune into the people who writes me a mean letter <laughs> um, or, or who comes up and yells at me in the face or who is obviously working against me. Those are the easy things to spot. But in this passage, we see that he wasn't just dealing with one kind of opposition. There were, I guess for me, different kinds of opposition. The first one, he says, is in verse 10. And he says, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Sometimes the opposition we're facing and running for what God is calling us to is our exhaustion, our internal thoughts, our weariness at the battle, or our assessment of the task ahead. And and sometimes we're so busy going, what is coming at me? That we forget that some of the biggest battles are what's happening inside of us. Um, not necessarily that we're telling ourselves bad things, but sometimes our sheer lack of sleep is holding us back. Our sheer exhaustion at how long this battle has been going on. I know some people have been walking, you know, family struggles 
for decades and that weariness of heart that can come that may be the biggest opposition you're facing the biggest purposeful struggle that you are called to fight is just the internal ability for those of us who struggle with chronic pain or health health issues the ability to to wrestle with the emotions the physical tap you know weariness the pain is one of the biggest most heroic battles that um that god walks us with and, uh, and there is something so helpful to me about recognizing that that sometimes that the, the bat our prime battle is what is rising up within us, um, not just what's coming at us from away. Um, Nehemiah also was was calling out the friends. I love you know all these remnant of the Jews that were all around, and they were saying they came to him ten times. Can you imagine your friends coming to you ten times and being like, "Look, be careful, because if you do this, it's going to be bad." Like careful the, the the friendly warnings and the wisdom and the truth being spoken around can be uh, overwhelming and this this sense of 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 the, what is around you and the situation you find yourselves in even friends calling it out can be oppressive and then you have the proactive destructive people who are just you know uh coming at you and and he recognized that nehemiah came in ready for the opposition and he came in recognizing the opposition that was inside that was around and was coming at him and then he made a plan he made a proactive plan and most of the time my preact proactive plan for calling on the sovereignty of god is to just do the first step to just go my powerpoint broke so we're here it's backwards it's not going to be helpful I'm going to leave it up just in case it's not backwards to cry out to God. Often I'm like, God, fix it. And then that's it. That's all I got. God, fix it. And Nehemiah did that repeatedly in the scripture. We see him crying out to God about people and interceding for that. And that is a hundred percent right to cry out to God. The plan of pulling God close and calling on him and crying out and praying and making plans. But that is followed really quickly in what Nehemiah did. And encouraging them with the truth they cried out to god they interceded it for it then he kept gathering the people together and saying don't be afraid of them remember the lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes he said he made a plan and then he said our god will fight for us there is a of clinging to what god has said of clinging to who god is of a clinging to what he has done in the past there are so many times when we are waiting for healing or we are waiting for a breakthrough that, that we stand and encourage ourselves and cry out to God, but also say, oh, God, I remember when you have done this. I knew uh, one time a friend wrote down all of the things that God had done in her life. And whenever she would pray, she would stand on a piece of paper that she had written of everything God had done because she wanted to stand on the testimony of what he is and who he is as she prayed. There was something about grabbing on. And I think sometimes in our battles, we just cry out and we forget to strengthen ourselves in scripture, strengthen ourselves in truth, strengthen ourselves in the testimony of what he has done. If we're facing opposition, how do we do that too? The third thing he did was he made a practical plan. He was like, okay, folks, this is where you're going to be. You're going to hold a weapon and you're going to dig with the other hand. And I can imagine if I'm trying to build something, the last thing I want is to have half my hands. And I think I would have kicked back against that. I would have been like, no, I want to try to do it as fast as possible. 
And there was something that he did about preparing for what might be. That means it went slower. That meant that it was harder, but it meant that he was ready. And I sometimes sacrifice readiness for speed in my life. And I find that so interesting of what would it look like if I said, how do I, how do I face this parenting issue, this new job struggle, this enemy that I'm facing? How do I do that? Always ready. It may be slower, it may be harder, but I will be ready to respond when it comes. That has been a deep challenge for me, particularly in areas of things like mental health. How do I prep for that? How do I make a plan? And the third thing he did, which I love, is he brought people back up. He made a plan for when I, when I blow this horn, I need you to come running at me like super fast. I need you to run. And if, if it goes over there, then we're all going to run there. And, and we all need people to back us up. That's the beauty of having a church family. If you're not connected into a church family, you need a church family because when you are facing opposition internally, externally, with, through friendship and wisdom, through people coming at you, you need to be able to blow the trumpet and gather the people around you who will pray for you, who will fight alongside of you, who will hold you up in that path. There are so many of us who are facing opposition between what feels like between us and what God has said, what God has promised, what we feel God is saying to do, whether it's parenting, whether it's just managing ourselves, whether it's stepping into a new ministry, whether it's loving those at our workplace through Zoom, there are things that God has placed in front of us. And sometimes we feel like we're hitting that wall and there is, there is an action plan to partner with what he is bringing. That is so exciting. What, what have we forgotten to cry out to God about? What, where have we been so discouraged of heart that we just need to pause and take a week to gather the encouragement that we can stand on for the future? Where do we feel constantly knocked off our feet where we need to pause and say the practical plan for how I'm going to walk into this adoption journey, how I'm going to walk into the next time I'm going to go see my parents who are struggling with dementia. The next time I'm going to walk into this, this is the plan for bringing God into that, for following his steps. And how are we going to get people back up? Because I'll tell you in my everyday life, there are times where I've got to stand up the flag and just say, I am not coping. I'm facing an opposition that will overwhelm me and I need people. And it's okay to do that. Sometimes we feel like we need those relationships before we can call the people. And what I love here is it just says you send the trumpet up and people will come running. And that's what a church community is about. I don't have to have known you for the last 10 years to hear your trumpet and to run to where you are. And we are a church family who does that. And we can all gather people around us who do that. And more importantly, we can be those people for each other. What would it look like if we were a community who were all walking different levels of opposition in all the different places that God was calling us to? But we together cried out to God. We together encouraged each other. We together helped each other plan these practical plans and walked side by side, responding to each other's trumpets. The sovereignty of God is, is always in action. And some of us can be so significant in the life of each other because God will accomplish his plans and purposes. And it's just figuring out a way through walking through opposition in a way that's purposeful, powerful, and normal that we may see God in every step of it and follow him in joy and achieve 
they built this wall so fast. It's astonishing. It's a miracle. And they did it together. And so I just wanted to encourage us in that. In a second, we're going to go into the groups to discuss. Some of us may need time to cry out to God. Some of us may need, I need 15 verses to get me through this. I need encouragement to cling on to you. Some of us may need a practical plan of just how do I cope with this thing that pops up every time. And some of us need to say, actually, I need backup. Um, so let's spend some time together um, talking about what we're facing. And I would really encourage you to be honest, to be open, because uh, they were vulnerable. And, and when we are, we can walk alongside each other well. Justine?